Also, before we jump in this morning to one more thought, I am very well aware of what's going on right now. I was a high school teacher for five years. I know what this looks like when I'm teaching something. I know what you're doing. I will call you out on that. The only person who knows what's going on in the game right now is me because I've got it on the confidence monitor back here behind everybody. So <laughs> I made some of y'all look, didn't I? <laughs> uh, I do want to tell you that Brad Fangman really, really wants to know what's happening in the game. So as there are score updates, text him because he needs to know this, what's going on in the game right now. Uh, the funny thing is when I lay out my preaching calendar, I, I, I have a, an Excel spreadsheet. I don't look at an actual calendar other than just to get the dates. I know what holidays are. I know if I'm out of town. And so I don't always correlate what's going on with who's preaching when. I totally thought the Chiefs Europe game was next Sunday when Brad was preaching. So, um, yeah, the, the joke's on me because, I, I mean, I totally wouldn't have been watching the game on my phone during the sermon but I would have been watching the game on my phone during the sermon. So um, I guess the joke's on me there, right? Uh, we, we were cracking up. We had a huge number of people at the 8 o'clock service. Like twice as many. I think people didn't know we had an 8 o'clock service until they had to get here and get out of here to go home and watch, watch a football game. So, Hey, we're glad you're here with us. We're in week four of the series called Questions Jesus Asked. And uh, we've looked so far at three questions, and in the next two weeks, we'll look at two more questions Jesus asked to the people around him, maybe his friends, maybe his followers, his disciples, maybe just a crowd of people. Uh, one week, we looked at a, a question he asked a woman that was caught in the act of adultery. He asked a question, why do you worry? To, to everybody who is listening in the Sermon on the Mount, he asked that woman, has no one condemned you? Last week, Ben uh, talked about a question he asked to a Large crowd of people who touched my clothes. The next two weeks, again, it's questions he asked to people specifically. And when Jesus asked these questions, it's often because there was a lesson that came with that. It wasn't just so much because he needed to know the answer, because he's God. He knows the answer. But he wanted them to think about something. There was a lesson in there that we can still take for us today. Today's question is unique. Because as far as I can tell, it's the one time he asks a question to nobody except God. Not expecting an answer, and also, I think, not expecting us to learn a lesson out of that. I think it's a question that in the moment Jesus asked out of his sheer humanness. Yes, he's fully God, but he was fully human too. And he asked the question out of his desperation, out of his most vulnerable moment. He's on the cross, and he cries out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the question we're going to look at today. And to kind of look at this, it, I want to give you some context and, and kind of take a different angle at this, because just the question itself doesn't tell us enough. We, we can back up and look at some of the context around this. In Matthew and Mark's Gospels, this is the last thing Jesus says before he dies. They say a couple of verses later, he lets out a loud cry, and, and then he died. In Luke, he asks, or says, says to God, into your hands I give my spirit, and then he dies. In John, he says, it is finished, and then he dies. I don't think that matters exactly the ordering there because the focus really when this question is asked is on just the deep desperation that Jesus finds himself in, on that moment of hurt, on that moment of abandonment and heartache. The, the whole verse goes like this, Matthew 27, verse 46, it says about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, limes sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
Again, when I look at this text, and, and if you read this in Matthew or Mark, it's almost the same thing. Just very slight little changes in the wording, but it, nothing that changes the message or what is said there. When you read this, and you start to back up, like so often in Scripture, and look at the greater context around it, you start to get a little bit more light on what's happening here. Just, just some context so you know where we're at in the story. Jesus is on the cross right here. And if you kind of look at the way the Gospels lay it out, he's been on the cross since 9 o'clock in the morning. He's crying this out at 3 o'clock in the morning, so he's been there for six hours, and he's at the end. When you looked at, at what's happening here, these first three hours or so that he's there, Mark's Gospel says that the Roman soldiers hurl insults at him, and the Jewish leaders would hurl insults at him. They would mock him. They actually put bets on who got to take home some of his clothing. And at one point, even they hang a sign over the top of the cross that says, King of the Jews, and they, they bow before him mockingly and, and, again, worship him mockingly. They spit on him. They hit him. They do all sorts of things to him to ridicule and, and, and heckle him. And when you compare Jesus on the cross here, again, six hours on a cross is not that long. Often people would hang on a cross for a few days until they finally died. The, the Roman crucifixion was one of the most efficient and barbaric practices ever conceived by man. This wasn't the common execution. This was reserved for essentially like a political revolutionary, somebody who was a threat to the state, not just a common criminal. And this was meant to make a statement to bring the, the maximum amount of shame and torture and pain upon the person who's hanging there. And now, six hours in, Jesus is starting to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think to get a better glimpse of that, you jump back one verse and you look at what happens about halfway through this six-hour mark. He's, he's nailed to the cross at nine o'clock in the morning. In verse 45, one verse earlier, it says, from noon... Until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. That's a powerful verse that often we just read as kind of a scene setter for what's taking place here. But there is a lot in this to unpack that I think helps to describe why Jesus is crying out in desperation and agony here. Darkness comes over all the land. That's an interesting way to word that. Some translations say over the whole earth. Most scholars think it's referring strictly to Judea. The, the land of, of the people of God. Israel, if you've seen it on a map or you've been there, it's not a very large country, but yet the entire country goes dark for three hours in the middle of the afternoon in the middle of springtime in Judea when it's normally bright and sunny. There is no, 2,000 years later, no natural explanation for this. Some people say, well, it was an eclipse. Well, sure, an eclipse will darken the day in the middle of the afternoon for a couple of minutes, not for three hours. And not only that, it's just not possible for this to have been an eclipse. Eclipses happen during a new moon. This is at Passover. Passover followed a full moon. So it couldn't have been that. Some people think maybe a dust storm or something of that nature. After all, it is kind of a desert area, but not for three hours. And not over strictly just one country and one country alone. There is no natural explanation for this even 2,000 years later. Skeptics both within and outside of the Christian circles have looked at this. Uh, my thought on it is, is simple, and maybe I'm overthinking it, but I think the darkness that's, that's put down here is given by God as a sign of the judgment that's coming. Not a judgment, however, on the people of Rome. Not a judgment on the Jewish people. The judgment is coming on Jesus. 
Jesus has been led to the slaughter. He is the lamb that is about to be sacrificed. And God's judgment had to be poured out on someone. And in this case, it's on Jesus. Darkness, we see throughout Scripture, is a sign of pain and trouble and sorrow. And it's also overwhelming at times. And I think maybe that's what Jesus is feeling here. Because God has had to pour out his wrath upon him. His friends and his family have abandoned him. He's being mocked and spit upon. But understand something, too, that despite all of this, it's in no way an indicator that the Savior on the cross means that God had lost control of the situation. This was the plan. This was the plan all along. God was very much in control. He was very much sovereign. In fact, this is fulfilling what prophecy said was going to happen. 750 years earlier, the prophet Amos wrote these words, In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious festivals into mourning and all your singing into weeping. And get this, I will make that time like mourning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Again, this is taking place when? At Passover. What is Passover? It's a religious festival. Maybe the most important religious festival on the Jewish calendar. And God is saying, I, 750 years earlier, the crucifixion didn't even exist yet, by the way, saying, I'm going to turn this religious festival into a time of weeping. And these, these wonderful singing and, and, and cheering and, and these wonderful times are going to be turned into mourning and weeping for the death of an only son. And again, this is taking place with the backdrop of Passover. The parallels here are, are crazy. Because you go back another 700 years. Back to around 1450 B.C., give or take a few years in there. And if you know your Old Testament history, you go back to the book of Exodus. And at this moment in time, we see the Israelites in, in slavery. They're in captivity in Egypt, and they've endured harsh uh, times in Egypt and harsh treatment in Egypt. So God sends Moses to go free his people, and Pharaoh tells him no. So God starts sending these plagues, trying to change the mind of Pharaoh. And most of the plagues are things like he'll send frogs into the nation, or he'll send flies into the nation, or turns the water into blood. He sends painful boils upon them. All the livestock is killed. He sends locusts that wipe out all of their crops. Eight plagues so far come, and still Pharaoh has not changed his mind. So God sends plague number nine. You know what it is? Exodus chapter 10, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness spreads over Egypt. A darkness that can be felt. You know how long this darkness lasted? Three days. You know how long the darkness is about to last? Three days. Not the literal darkness, but the spiritual darkness of Jesus being gone off the earth for three days before he resurrects. And here's what's fascinating about this. In this Passover story, God sends darkness as the ninth plague. Number 10 the death of the firstborn son. And the firstborn son across Egypt is killed except for those who were under God's care. Those people of God who, who were obedient and took the blood of the lamb and painted it around their doorpost. The angel passed them over. And here we have 1,450 years later the same thing happening. 
We have the same thing happening. Darkness comes in as a sign of judgment, and then the firstborn, but this time not the firstborn of everyone, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn of God, the only son of God. You see, here's the thing about God you you may not understand. God cannot be good if he's not also just. And when somebody is just, there is consequences for wrong actions. Romans 6 tells us the wages of sin is what? It's death. And so here in this moment, we see death coming, but not to us like we deserve, to God's only son. He was the one who bore God's judgment on that day in my place and in your place. He was the one that was the atoning sacrifice for God's ultimate judgment. Paul writes in Romans 3 that God put him, Jesus, forward as a propitiation by his blood. Other translations will say sacrifice of atonement, but I like this word propitiation that you see in like the English Standard Version or the New American Standard Version because propitiation is defined as the act of appeasing or satisfying God so as to avoid his wrath. We don't like to think about that. But again, God cannot be good if he's not also just. There has to be both. There has to be both sides of that to balance it out here. And so what all of this is saying is that on the darkest of days, when it was both literally dark for three hours, and when it was both metaphorically and emotionally and spiritually dark, God poured out his wrath for me and for you and for all of mankind onto his one and only son so that maybe one day we could believe in him and have everlasting life. God took his one and true and perfect lamb. That's what the Jewish people were required to do, was take a pure and spotless lamb to the temple to be slaughtered for their sins. And they had to do this every year. And God said, enough of that. We're going to start a new way, a new day, a new covenant, and it's going to be through the blood of my lamb. And so Paul writes in Romans, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 5, that God made him, talking about Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God took him who knew no sin. Jesus is recorded as being a a sinless person. Hebrews tells us that he was tempted and tried in every single way that we were and that we are, and yet he did not sin. And God poured all of our sin on him when he was on the cross. And here's what you have to understand, church. Where sin is, God cannot be. He's perfect and holy, and he can't be where sin is. And so he pours his sin on his son, and in that moment, God has to turn his back on him. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now understand something, too. Me saying that sin was poured out on Jesus, that does not mean in any way, shape, or form that Jesus was sinful in that moment. does not indicate in any way, shape, or form that Jesus, because he bore our sins, was suddenly sin. That's not what that means. It also doesn't mean that he was no longer God. He was still God in the flesh in this moment. But in this moment, the father had to turn his back on the son to let his son become something that needed to be atoned for. And Jesus, who's been abandoned by everybody, his family, his friends, his disciples, even Peter has walked away from him. He's left at the cross, it says, with his mother and a couple of other women and the apostle John. And that's it. And even his father's turning his back on him now too. 
I wonder if this is what Jesus had in mind when hours earlier he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was begging and pleading with God, let this cup pass from me. I always thought that when when Jesus is praying this, he knew the physical torment that was going to come. And even to some degree, the emotional torment that was going to come. Because again, the Roman crucifixion was barbaric. It was meant to inflict as much pain as possible for as long as possible. That's what I always thought, that that Jesus just didn't want to face. Because who would? Who would want to face that? But I think he understood what that cup actually was. It was a cup of judgment that was going to be poured out on him. And I think Jesus knew in that moment that the Father was going to have to step away for just a moment. And that that would be his breaking point. That that would be the moment when he simply cried out, why have you forsaken me? Maybe you felt that at times. Maybe you've cried that out at times. God, where are you? God, I believe in you, I I follow you, I worship you, I go to church, I serve, I do all these things. I've done everything you've asked me to do, and where are you? You face those dark days. Maybe you're facing them right now. Maybe you're in the middle of them right now. You're in a financial crisis that you just can't seem to find your way out of. Maybe it's a terminal diagnosis that, that just feels crushing to you. Maybe it's a, you, you feel like your family's turned their backs on you or your friends have left you. Maybe it's just simply rejection or maybe it's just there's something in your mind that keeps telling you you're not enough. And whatever it is, you find yourself in a world that is dark, so dark that it can be felt, just like we read about with Exodus. Maybe that's you right now. And you're crying out, God, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Can I just give you something today? You have to remember something about darkness. That no matter how dark it is, no matter how overwhelming it feels, no matter how much it's suffocating you, darkness is always temporary. It always ends. It doesn't always end the way you want it to, but it does always end. And, and maybe it's fitting that we're talking about this today of all days. Because again, when I said earlier, I, I don't always correlate the calendar to my preaching schedule. I put this on the books uh, like early June. I had no idea today was daylight savings time day. <laughs> and so that darkness is going to roll in a little earlier than we wanted it to, maybe. You know, five o'clock is going to be dark. You're like, okay, here we go. Six months of this, woo But you know this. Darkness rolls in, why? To signal the end of a day, but also to usher in the new one. It signals the end of one day, but it ushers in a new day today. And I love the fact that today was the first day of daylight savings time because I got to be reacquainted with something that I hadn't seen in a while. Because I usually come here about 6 o'clock, 6.15 on a Sunday morning. And as I come east down K-10, where it starts to end, and I take that big overpass that loops north to get on 435, I get up on top of that overpass, and every Sunday morning I can look off to the east as I'm making that curve, and what do I see? I see the darkness starting to end. I see the sun starting to rise. And today I didn't see the actual sun, but I could see the effects of it. And sometimes that's all you need. You don't have to see the sun, you just have to see the effects of it. The darkness is always temporary because it signals one day ending and a new one beginning. 
Jesus said in Mark 13, in those days following the distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. But at that time, the people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And I think he was referring to what was about to happen. Things were about to get dark for a few days, and then the the glory was going to come. Death thought it had won. And just like in your life, death thinks that it's going to win, but we know better. We know better because we've seen the Son of Man coming in glory. Can I tell you something, church? Darkness does not equal God's absence. God's silence does not equal God's absence. You can look throughout Scripture and see many times that God was working in the darkness. Solomon says that God dwelt in the darkness in 1 Kings chapter 8. We see in in, uh, Exodus 20, he comes through the darkness to meet Moses to give him the law. We see in 2 Samuel 22, he descends through the darkness to go down into battle with his people. Let me tell you something. Finding yourself in darkness is by no means a sign that God has left you. He hasn't. He hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't forsaken you. He has not and he will not. On the contrary, if you've given your life to him and you've made him the Lord of your life, I can promise you that not only has he not left you, he never will. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What that means is if you're his, guess what? (laughs) You're his, and he's not going to lose sight of you. He's not going to just forget that you're there. He's not going to just hang you out to dry. He may be silent at times, but that does not mean he is absent or that he doesn't care. Here's our problem. Too often we can't spiritually hear the truth of the gospel because we're uncertain of the physical needs around us. What we can or cannot see, what we can or cannot hear, what we can or cannot feel blinds us and deafens us to what is there because we live in a very real physical world and we get caught up in that and despite what we want to believe we're very human and we're drawn to the physical we're drawn to what we can see and touch and and it's tangible to our senses but there's a promise that scripture gives us and it's a promise that is repeated so many times promise that I have staked my life on because I believe it to be true. That it is said to Jacob in Genesis 28, and it's said by Solomon talking about God in 1 Kings chapter 8, and it's repeated by the writer of Hebrews later on in the New Testament. A promise that is said so many times, but maybe never more, more powerful and, and meaningful than when Moses says it to a young leader named Joshua. This is Joshua who was a conquering leader that helped Israel get the promised land that we think of as being this just really strong, really brave, bold leader. When we read about, we see he, he struggled with insecurities. He struggled with doubt because God has to remind him time and time and time again this same truth that Moses tells him in Deuteronomy 31 when he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or afraid because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. And here's the promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. You can't physically see 
or touch or maybe even hear God. But folks, that doesn't make the promise any less true. That doesn't make the promise any less true. If anything, it should just reaffirm for you and give you reassurance for you that everything that you go through, everything that you face, you are not facing alone because God is with you. If you find yourself in financial hardship, guess what? God is with you. If you've been rejected by your family or friends, God is with you. If you've lost your job and you don't know what you're going to do next, God is with you. If you've got a terminal diagnosis, God is with you. If you've lost somebody close to you, God is with you. If there's been tragedy in your family, God is with you. And he always will be. And he'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you. He'll never leave you on your own. That's the promise that we have. That even when things are dark, he is still with us. Psalm 46, this verse that we have said so many times over these last couple of months, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help. Underline that or highlight that, an ever-present help in your times of trouble. The problem that we have is, again, this dark world that we are a part of blinds us to God sometimes and tells us that he's not there, tells us that he doesn't care, Tells us that, well, a loving God could never possibly allow things like this to happen. And I don't know why things happen. I don't know why things happen the way that they do, but I know it's this. It's not because he doesn't love us. It's not because he doesn't care for us or want the best for us. We live in a broken world where we're free to make decisions that we want to make, and we have to live with the consequences of those and the the decisions that other people have made too. But that doesn't mean that God isn't active and present. The Bible says it, I believe it, because I've seen it in my own life. And I could sit up here and tell you story after story, and I'm sure many of you could tell story after story. But what I want to do is just give you something to think about and hold on to today. Because it's one thing to read it. It's one thing, I think, to even believe it. But I think it's another thing to actually live in the confidence that God will never leave you or forsake you. So I want to just give you a couple of reasons, and and there's a bunch of reasons, but I'm going to, for the sake of time, just give give you a couple. How can you learn to live in the confidence of God? Number one, find contentment in your life. Find contentment. Sometimes one of our biggest struggles, wondering where God is, is because we're not content with what God's already done for us. And we can't look back so that we can look forward. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. He's talking in this this greater passage here about money and financial gain and material gain. But what he's talking about here is, no, what God gave you is what you have. Find contentment with that. Contentment is fueled by gratitude. And gratitude is the ability to look at what God has done for you already so that you can look ahead to see what God's going to do next for you. And it's the ability to be grateful and and happy with that. Find contentment. Number two, mind your mind. Maybe another way to say this is guard your mind. Be careful where your mind goes. Because, again, we live in a world that wants to pull us in places that make our minds question and think, and we often follow that. 
2 Corinthians 10, it says, We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Folks, we live in a world that is so filled with goodness. There's so many good things going on in our world. But yet we fixate and focus on the things that are bad. We're drawn to the things that are bad. We're drawn to the things that are toxic. Because we're broken, flawed people ourselves. And so when we're, we're, we're drawn to that, sometimes we just get so wrapped up in that. And that's when you give the enemy a seat at the table. As you let him in. And he starts to control your thoughts. And, and when he starts to control your thoughts, you start to question everything. And not in a good way. But you question in a way that may start to make you ask the question, God, are you even there? Do you even care? And eventually, if you follow those questions long enough, it might lead to, I don't even care. Guard your mind. Fixate on what is good. Set your mind on the things above, the Bible tells us. Set your mind on the things of God. And number three, if you want to live in the confidence of God, be obedient to Christ. I say be obedient to Christ, and that seems like an obvious one. We should be doing that anyway. But I think if you're true to what he tells you to do, doesn't mean bad times won't come or bad things won't happen, but I think you're going to be able to stand a little stronger when they do. Jesus told us we could. He gives the Sermon on the Mount, and in this, this great long sermon, the series of lessons, he's telling you how to live for the kingdom rather than living for yourself. And as he wraps that up, he says this in Matthew 7, everyone who puts, uh, hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, but it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. And he goes on to say, if you built it on the, the sand, that's like when you didn't listen to what I said. And when all those things come, guess what? The house gets blown away. Build your foundation on a firm foundation. Build your house on the rock because those times will come. You don't have to be perfect and your life won't be perfect, but if you chase after him and you seek his righteousness and you seek him and his will, it says that we're going to be able to endure those times. Jesus never promised us an easy road. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. that out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you've asked him, God, where are you? If you've asked him, God, do you even still care? Let me just tell you, number one, he does. He hasn't. Number two, he can handle that. He's a big God. He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's not going to leave you. Don't be afraid to cry out to him. Don't be afraid to wrap yourselves in the church. Get, get people around you to help you so that you, you can see and feel you're not alone because God sent people into your, your life to be there for you. But sometimes we just need the reminder. What I want to do today as, as we close out the sermon is we've invited the band to come up and we're going to sing a declaration. We call it a closing prayer if you want, but we're going to sing a declaration sing a declaration that no matter what the world throws at us, we have a firm foundation that we build our lives on. That we have a God who will never leave us, will never forsake us.
that he will never just let us go. We're going to invite you to stand. If you know this song, you can sing it. If you don't, the words are there. You can sing along with them or you can meditate on them as we do. But I should invite you to stand and join us as we, we wrap up this morning. is my firm foundation the rock on which I stand everything around me is shaking I've never been more glad I put my faith in Jesus he's never let me down he's faithful
truth is, is at some point in life, everything around us is shaken. And so we can just kind of get into that mental place of everything around us is going to fail. But God, we know that you won't. You never have and you never will. So thank you for being the firm foundation for which we can build our lives upon and have some eternal security in all of the chaos. In your name we pray. Amen.